virtual particles, movie fear, and sneezing at the sun. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But I'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science faith and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I'm your host, Science Mike. Uh, That's my internet name. My real name is Mike McCarg. I'm an author, podcaster, speaker of this little program. Uh, This week I'm co-hosted by my dogs who are very likely to snore, but uh, hopefully that won't be too bad and uh, we'll get a show done. So let's get it started. So there's big news in my life last fall when my first book came out. It's called Finding God in the Waves, and it explores a story I've told on approximately a billion podcasts um, about what it was like to uh, grow up in the Baptist faith, become an atheist as an adult, and then return to a faith in a different way following a mystical experience. And how I learned to understand God primarily through a scientific lens. It's been a, a really, really good time uh, in my life since that book came out and seeing how people have responded to it. And I'm sure many of you have a copy of Finding God in the Waves. Uh, but this October, October 3rd, I believe, the paperback is coming out of that book. And uh, I'll have more to talk about that as we get closer. But if you don't have Finding God, in the waves yet, um, and you're interested in the paperback, I did see it's on Amazon for like $8.60, something like that, really, really low. I don't know how long that price will stay there. So if you want like to get Finding God in the Waves the most affordable way uh, that has ever been, just go to Amazon and pre-order the book. But you won't get it until October, of course. The hardback is available right now for a few more dollars. Other things... Uh, will be uh, talked about as we get closer to the book. There's some really cool uh, things my publisher's working on that I don't think I can talk about yet, but uh, more more there. Finding God in the Waves paperback coming in October. Let's talk about events tomorrow. This, this episode comes out May 15th and May 16th. I'll be at Buckhead Church in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, and that is a singles event. So if you are single, I think we'd love to see you there. And then it'll be quiet for a little while. September 15th, I'll be at the Liturgist Gathering in Los Angeles, October 6th. The Liturgist Gathering in Boston, October 27th. The Liturgist Gathering in Seattle. If you'd like to learn more about the Liturgist Gathering or grab your tickets, go to theliturgistgathering.com. In the middle of October, I'll be doing a little uh, Ask Science Mike tour in the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland. And October 21st, I'll be at the Rubicon Conference in Dublin, Ireland, which, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Uh, Really, really cool people organizing that event. And uh, I haven't been before, but I hear it is an absolutely phenomenal conference. November 15th, I'll be at the Ripple Effect Conference in Lourdes, Massachusetts. So that's the events on the calendar right now. For the rest of the year, I've got some 
private events that we don't put on the website, so sorry about that. <laughs> um, and if you're interested in bringing me to your conference or church uh, or community or college or, or whatever, uh, you can go to my website and uh, asksciencemike.com, click on the menu, to, and then there's a little button that says speaking that'll let you invite me to your place. I'd love to see you. Uh, I will be keeping the summer clear because we're moving. So, <laughs> yeah, we're moving to L.A. this summer. So I don't want to stack a lot of events uh, in the middle of all that. But if you'd like, maybe in the fall or the winter, we do have a few spots available. Just a few spots left in 2017. And actually, 2018 is uh, already starting to book as well. So if you would like a little Science Mike event, don't hesitate. I'd love to see you. Hey, Science Mike. I've read about virtual particles in a few different books, but I realized that trying to explain it to my wife was very difficult. So can you explain virtual particles in a way that's easy to understand for someone who hasn't read about them? Thank you. I don't know if I can or not, but I will give it my best shot. Here's how I think about virtual particles. Uh, First, you have to place them in the context of the theory they originate from. So let's kind of picture the Russian dolls of reality for a moment, right? Everything is made of something. If we think about a clock, what is a clock made of? Well, they're made of gears, springs, and screws, and metal housing. There's all these pieces of a clock. Well, like, what is a gear made of? What is a spring made of? Well, it's made of metal, right? We can go to a factory and and watch metal be smelted and formed into the parts of a clock. Okay, well, what is metal made of? Molecules, little bits of uh, atomic structure, which, of course, answers the next question, what are molecules made of? Atoms, which for a long time were believed to be the most fundamental piece of reality that you couldn't divide any further. Of course, we know how to split the atom. And we know that atoms are actually made out of protons, neutrons, and electrons, right? Protons and neutrons can actually be divided into smaller little particles, but uh, let's ignore that for a second and just ask, like, what are electrons made of? Can you divide electrons into smaller little particles? Well, no, to our knowledge, you can't. So what are electrons made of? Uh, (laughs) we have gone all the way down the rabbit hole. We don't think that electrons can be divided. So what are they made of? Fields. (laughs) There's this idea in physics that's pretty well supported called quantum field theory. And that says that everything there is, matter and energy, are uh, emerge from these fields that pervade the entire universe. Now, what kind of fields are they? That depends on which model you're talking about. And there are several, uh, actually more than several, (laughs) probably more than a dozen competing models that have different strengths at explaining different things we see and observe in reality. Uh, But a really famous field is the Higgs field, okay? The Higgs field is everywhere. And when particles interact with the Higgs field, they get mass and gravity. They get weight. 
but mass uh, is is independent of gravity. Uh, every field has like a native particle, a particle it really likes to create. And the Higgs field, its favored particle, its native particle is the Higgs boson, which was very famous for being called the God particle. Um, so electrons aren't made of the Higgs field, although the Higgs field gives them mass. They're made of a different field. So electrons are made of the electron field in quantum field theory. Now, if you're paying attention to physics, you'll notice that different schools of physics would give you different explanations for what an electron is made of. But to talk about virtual particles, we're just going to stick with uh, quantum field theory, okay? So, you have these fields. You can think of them like an ocean for a second, even though an ocean has a two-dimensional surface. Uh, you know, the surface of an ocean, it has waves, right? And uh, you can imagine that particles are the peak of a wave. That's how you have a particle. You have an excitement of a field. You have energy added to a field. And uh, that's what particles are. Real particles, not virtual particles, are these persistent, excited points in a given field. Uh, But here's the thing. Fields wobble. They can't be still, at least not without a tremendous amount of energy. So when you look at a vacuum an empty portion of space, then uh, there's some wobble in those fields. And sometimes there's enough of a of an random fluctuation to create a particle out of nothing. What? Yeah, a particle is created out of just the excitement of a field. Now, you might say, but wait about, what about the conservation of energy? Matter matter can't just be created. Well, that's true, but it's not true on very small, very short time intervals in quantum theory. So as long as virtual particles appear and then disappear within a small enough window of time, you haven't violated any physics. Now, this is all... Uh, mathematically plausible, right? Math, what's true in math is what's axiomatically consistent. Um, and so first virtual particles were, were predicted by mathematical models. And uh, the idea here is they, they appear in pairs. The way they annihilate is if, a, if an electron appears as a virtual particle, uh, very nearby a positron does as well, and then they're attracted to each other, they collide, they annihilate again, Physics is totally fine with that. So they're mathematically plausible. They're mathematically predicted. Uh, But physics is a different standard for does something exist than axiomatic or mathematical plausibility. Physics wants observation. So have virtual particles been observed? Yeah, absolutely. One example in 1948, Hendrik Casimir found that two metal plates uh, placed very close together in a vacuum, complete vacuum, are actually pushed toward each other by the effect of virtual particles because they're so close together. It affects the wavelength of the field energy, and it means that you have higher wavelength virtual particles on the outside of the metal plates than within them, which creates a pressure. It begins to push the plates together. 
Now, it's not very much. It's a very small effect. It's uh, about the mass energy of like a red blood cell. So (laughs) it's not a lot. Um, But it is a measurable effect. And so that's what virtual particles are. They are the oscillation of uh, fields in space. And in quantum field theory, everything is made of fields. Isn't that wild? Isn't that wild? Now, you might have different predictions in uh, string theory, (laughs) but string theory uh, right now is not nearly so well supported by observation as quantum field theory. And this is a, a big thing in how science, especially physics, works. We begin with some observations, and then we create a mathematical model that explains those observations and makes new predictions. So what virtual particles in quantum field theory have going for them is a predictions. They predicted virtual particles before the effects of virtual particles were observed. Now notice I said the effects of virtual particles were observed because you can't directly observe virtual particles because they don't exist long enough. You can only see if uh, they create an effect on reality. Uh, so I don't know how accessible <laughs> an explanation that was. Um, if you don't want to do like a ton of reading, I have uh, four links on the website, asksciencemike.com, on this episode 113 uh, that can help you understand that a little bit better. Totally fun to think about, though. So great question. Thank you. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Hey, Mike, I've got a question about fear. Over the past few years, I have found that one thing that gives me life the most is watching, analyzing, critiquing, and discussing movies. While I'm an any-genre kind of guy, I particularly love horror movies. I'm usually not scared during horror movies because I have my critical glasses on, but sometimes the concepts behind the film can freak me out for days or weeks at a time. Even if I logically know said concepts are impossible. For example, a malicious being who can only exist in the dark. I know this is commonly experienced for people watching horror movies, so my question is this. Why do people stay fearful of things we see in movies even if they haven't been a part of our lived experience, and if we logically know they cannot be real. What is going on in our brains here? It's killing me to know. Okay, this one's, uh, I think, pretty straightforward. Logic is a really recent addition to the human experience. (laughs) Really, really, really recent. We're, We're based on really old technology, right? Every human represents an unbroken line back to the origin of life on this planet. Think about that. You are an iteration of the earliest life on this planet. An unbroken line of successful experiments led to you. So that process has produced some incredible innovations. I mean, think about how cool skin is. You have a barrier 
that keeps invading organisms away from the operational systems inside your body. Brains are amazing. Brains turn out to be an incredible accident of evolution and were highly favored once they emerged. The human brain, of course, is quite remarkable. And it mainly seems to have become so elaborate because of how highly social our species is. You needed to imagine what other humans might think about you in order to survive. So language came later. Language came later. Our brains were anatomically modern before we incorporated language in our communication and in our thinking. And of course, logic came much, 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 much later than language. So the ancient systems of your brain tasked with keeping you alive? Well, they, they've never heard of logic. <laughs> and if they, if they have, they don't trust it. What, what survival advantage does logic give you when facing a large predator or an adversarial human? Logic is no help at all in that situation. Your limbic system is much, 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 much better suited to keeping you alive. And that's what evolution wants to do. Evolution wants to keep you alive and help you pass on your genes and help members of your family and your social group pass on their genes. And so one of the earliest, best uses of language was describing dangers one human experienced to, to another human who had not had the same experience. Imagine the survival advantage of describing a snake, a kind of snake you were the only one who had seen. Can you imagine? Or someone had been bit by a snake and who was falling ill because of it. Well, they could describe the snake they saw that bit them, and others could avoid that snake. We use language to describe things that could hurt our survival chances. We use language to describe places where we could successfully find food, water, and shelter. So, of course, horror movies are effective. They describe dangers that speak to our primitive brains, our limbic systems. The things our limbic systems are afraid of are at the heart of horror movies. Your mammal brain and your lizard brain are afraid of the dark because your senses are better adapted to function in daylight. When the sun goes down, homo sapiens are more vulnerable. So the idea of something catching you unaware in the night is something your DNA really wants you to be aware of. Now, stories are particularly powerful in shaping our thoughts. And what, what, are, what are movies but extremely well-told stories? When we engage with a story, we actually experience the point of view of the protagonist of that story. What they see, we see. What they feel, we feel as a social species, when you see someone react in terror to something on screen, while your logical mind, while your analytical mind 
maybe aware this is a story, maybe even be slightly bemused, the social functions of your brain are echoing the emotions displayed in body language and tone of voice on the screen. And when you encapsulate that all into a narrative framework, part of your brain follows the entire journey as if it was real. And so that's sticky because the more ancient part of your brain think you've just learned about a warning of something that could get you in your life because your lizard brain and large portions of your mammalian brain have no awareness of cinema, no awareness of abstraction, merely danger and reward. Hey, Science Mike. I'm Katie from Dallas, Texas. My question is inspired by a question I just heard on an older Ask Science Mike Live episode from Kansas City, where someone asked about what believing in Jesus does to your brain as opposed to believing in other religions. You mentioned in your answer that if you scanned the brain of like a Westerner when they're praying, their prayer is more in their language part of their brain. And if you scanned someone who's more Eastern, who's maybe like a Buddhist monk, that their visual cortex would light up. This got me thinking, what does the brain scan of the visual cortex of a blind person look like? Is it just completely dark? Or do blind people have maybe dreams in which they see? Do they experience thoughts in which their visual cortex is able to analyze whatever they're thinking about? If a person is born blind and they don't know what sight is, I would imagine what they would imagine that they're seeing would not be accurate. But I'm just curious, do they see anything at all in their brain? I have the same question for maybe like a Helen Keller type person who's blind and deaf and has no concept of language. What did Helen Keller's brain look like before she felt the word water finger spelled into her hands. Was there anything there? Was it just a lot of frustration and anger towards not being able to communicate? Or was there even frustration and anger without words and visions to express that? I'm very curious. I'm excited to hear your answer. Thanks, Science Mike. Katie, I really like your question. I like your line of reasoning. I love the way that you're searching with things you've learned and experienced to imagine what result you may expect. And I like that instead of just following your instincts and assuming they're correct, that you're trying to validate your hypothesis with research, with uh, observations from scientists. You're an excellent thinker, Katie. Uh, Thank you so much for your question. Uh, Now, in terms of the content of the question, some of it is actually quite challenging. Um, We'll talk about brain activity in blind people in a moment, but the, the larger question of, you know, what is it like in the inner landscape, in the thought landscape of someone who is blind or blind and deaf and doesn't experience language, that is incredibly difficult to speak to because we can't measure people's subjective experiences. We can measure activity in the brain, but the way that 
manifests into subjective experience, we don't know. And again, our imaging of brain activity is very primitive, very low resolution. We, we image neurons by the millions uh, at a time. A single voxel on a brain scan can include, at the very least, hundreds of thousands, but more typically, millions of neurons. So it's hard to turn into an understanding of what someone is experiencing. So we only know of, of another's experiences and thoughts what they can tell us and describe to us. And language has some pretty hard limits. There are, there's a term uh, called qualia, and this is an idea in philosophy, but these are, are things we've experienced but cannot describe. I can give you a very easy example. The color green. If I say green, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've seen green. But how would you describe a green to a person who has never seen the color green? What would you say to evoke green in their mind? If you have an answer, <laughs> please tell me, because I've never heard a scientist or philosopher or anyone describe how they could vocally evoke a green experience in the mind of another person. And this is what we're talking about here. Uh, for a person who has an inner landscape but has never seen, and a person who has seen, there is a lack of common experience to frame qualia. So there may be experiences that cannot be communicated between those two people using a shared language. So we accidentally jumped into some philosophy there. <laughs> but it, I think it was necessary to answer the question. More on that in a moment. Now let's go back to the brain, that easier thing to discuss. You know, neuroscience. <laughs> How delightful. Uh, in terms of brain activity... When a person became blind has a significant effect on what we see, whether it's early blindness or late blindness. But the brain is really resourceful and has high plasticity. So our brain has the ability to repurpose parts of itself uh, based on need, based on damage, based on changes in stimulus. Um, so the visual cortex has a lot of neurons. It's a very elaborate part of the neocortex. And why would the brain waste those just because you're not getting signals uh, from the eyes anymore or ever? So what, what we've seen in studies is that the visual cortex will actually begin to process sound and tactile, meaning touch, sensory data, to give the brain additional processing resources related to those senses. What that means is that there is a scientific basis to say that blind people may actually hear and feel with more, and I mean feel with touch, not emotionally, but they hear and feel with more acuity than sighted persons. That's, that's supported by this research. Now, studies have shown uh, activity, for example, in the visual cortex when blind people read Braille or 
when they hear sounds, activity that we don't see in sighted people when they're used as controls in an experiment. Now, I mentioned that when someone became blind, that has an effect on how the visual cortex processes uh, these sensations in people with early blindness. It tends to be uniform across both hemispheres of the brain uh, and people who uh, have late blindness, who spent a large portion of their life uh, with sight. There tends to be an asymmetry, particularly the right uh, hemisphere's visual cortex tends to show more activity with tactile and sound stimulus. But absolutely, the visual cortex begins to process other things, but that's not the same as um, an imagined sight at all. And I don't, I don't know uh, how to explain that. Um, now, I would like to read this in terms of those lived experiences, uh, something I found fascinating from a piece in Mental Floss, which is a website I love called Is It Possible to Think Without Language? I'm going to read you one paragraph. There is also evidence that deaf people cut off from language spoken or signed think in sophisticated ways before they have been exposed to language. When they later learn language, they can describe the experience of having had thoughts like those of the 15-year-old boy who wrote in 1836 after being educated at a school for the deaf that he remembered thinking in his pre-language days that perhaps the moon would strike me, and I thought that perhaps my parents were strong and would fight the moon, and it would fail, and I mocked the moon. Also, the spontaneous sign language developed by deaf students without language models in places like Nicaragua display the kind of thinking that goes far beyond mere sensory impression or practical problem-solving. Now, those were deaf people without language, I was not able to find much research for um, deaf, blind brain scans and none that elucidated on what uh, a thought process might be like in that landscape. But the, the, the truth is, language uh, doesn't affect the sophistication of our thoughts necessarily, but it does affect what we can use thoughts for. Language allows us to use abstractions contemplate ideas, to uh, pin thoughts in place, uh, to, to do more structural uh, work in our cognition than we could do otherwise. Ultimately, it's a mystery what uh, it was like for someone like Helen Keller before learning language. And it's, it's not something we can possibly communicate. Uh, and if someone like Helen Keller understood the question and tried to answer it, the answer may not evoke in your mind their experience because of this thing, qualia. Some parts of the human experience are beyond explanation using language. Our last question came in via email, and it reads, Hey Mike, ever since I can remember, I've always sneezed if I look directly at the sun or a light. A lot of times, I don't even need to directly look at the sun. Just being out on a bright day can cause me to sneeze uncontrollably. Sometimes, if I feel a sneeze on the brink, but it's not happening, 
I'll intentionally look at a light bulb or into the sky and utilize this power to force a sneeze to come out. Though I understand it's probably not a good idea to stare at the sun or bright lights. I know I'm not the only person with this affliction, and arguably that one-third of the population suffers from it. Why does this happen? What could possibly be going on in my body to cause me to sneeze because of bright light? I have terrible news for you. We don't know exactly why this happens. (laughs) I did a lot of research, and um, yeah, this is at least named. It's called uh, Photic Sneeze Reflex. Uh, So basically light sneeze reflex. And informal studies, there have been no rigorous studies done, but informal surveys uh, say that 10 to 35% of people experience PSR. And again, the reason we don't have a lot of studies on it is because it's not really a life-impairing condition, so it's pretty hard to get a research grant for something like that. There's a theory on where it comes from. And you have a nerve, a cranial nerve, called the trigeminal nerve and uh, it triggers a sneeze when your nose is irritated it also helps uh, deliver uh, sensory sensation information from your face does some motor control as well but it's it's like very very responsible for sneezes it detects that uh, irritation in the nose and what's interesting about this nerve is that it runs close to the optic nerve, which delivers what? The sensory information from your eyes. So the idea, the theory, is that when you see a bright light in people who experience PSR, and one of my daughters does, there's so much information traveling on the optic nerve that maybe some kind of leaks over or crosstalks onto the trigeminal nerve. And that triggers a sneeze. Now, what's interesting is it's not technically uh, the brightness of the light that triggers this, but the rapid change from dim light to bright light. It's changes in brightness that triggers the sensation. And it's, it's not attached to any particular wavelength. Green light, blue light, red light, whatever light you choose, if it's bright enough, can trigger the effect. So if, you, if it bothers you and you want to mitigate it, you want to control the rapid changes in light level. So uh, the easiest way to do that is a great pair of sunglasses. And we, we have seen um, that sunglasses can actually minimize the effect. And it can be dangerous. One common trigger is people coming out of a tunnel in a car into sunlight. Then they sneeze. And you go blind for a moment when you sneeze which is dangerous traveling at high speed in a metal object uh, (laughs) that has more force than the bullet coming out of a gun. So uh, that can be dangerous, and a good pair of sunglasses uh, can help you avoid an involuntary sneeze triggered by light. What a fun episode that was. That's a... (laughs) It's like two episodes in a row of just wall-to-wall science questions. What do you think? Did you enjoy that? Are you liking the more science questions? Because Ask Science Mike is not my show, it's yours. We talk about what you 
want to talk about. 100% of the questions on this program come from the audience, and uh, I don't pick the questions for the show. Uh, the patrons on Patreon do that. So whatever you want the show to be, if, if, if you know, for a while we were in a real Dear Abby zone, a lot of advice questions. Now we seem to be getting really back into um, science questions. Sometimes we tend to go on these kind of theolo- theological binges. So whatever you want to talk about on this program, you can make it happen by going to AskScienceMike.com and submitting a question. You can send me a voicemail on my website or an email. Uh, Voice questions have a much better chance of getting on the program, but we'll take any question you've got. And if you'd like to help pick the questions for the program, uh, just join me on Patreon. So there's a Patreon button on AskScienceMike.com. You can click that to learn more. $5 a month gets you uh, in the club, and you vote on questions every week. Um, And thank you, by the way, to all you patrons who do that. Not only contribute financially, but also like work (laughs) and pick the questions for the program. I do appreciate that. I want to thank Greg Nordine for producing Ask Science Mike. I want to thank Andrew Galucky for his work with pre-production and screening questions. I want to thank Jeff Bonifer for writing the Ask Science Mike theme song, which is like one of my favorite songs ever. I love it when I meet you all and you sing it to me. That is hilarious. And thanks for listening. I can't wait to talk to you next week.